Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host, Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially, what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives. And of course, we want to learn about their core principles of investing. Essentially, a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing. Popularly recognized as a disciple of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, Monish Pabrai has a knack for picking multi-bagger stocks across the world. Based out of the US, Monish has had great success in buying stocks following his simple approach. Buy stocks that are selling so cheap that it almost makes no sense at all. And then hold on to them for a long period of time. In this fascinating conversation, Monish also talks about selling stocks and a whole bunch of other stuff including giving away wealth. Towards the end, we talk about inheritance and Monish shares a fantastic personal experience. A must listen. Uh, Monish, thank you very much for making time uh, to do this, the Mint Equity Master podcast with us. We're super delighted to have you on the show. Uh, well, Rahul, the pleasure is all mine. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, you know, uh, our podcast is more about the individual and uh, the way they've approached situations in life. And from there, we draw the lessons. So we'll do the same thing today, if, you know, if you'll indulge me. So I want to kick it off by starting right from the beginning. Uh, if you could spend a few minutes talking about where you grew up, uh, a little bit about your parents, uh, what were your parents, you know, professionally, business-wise, and also uh, whether at that point in time, whether there was any investments, discussions, IPO papers, or something doing the rounds in the house. If you can give us a little bit of a background on that. Sure. I was um, I was born in uh, Bandra in Mumbai, uh, Amchi, Mumbai. I'm right now. Stone, stone okay. <laughs> on uh, Linking Road. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, this year. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, the first uh, 18 years of my life was uh, 10 years in Mumbai, six years in Delhi, and two years in Dubai, though it was not in uh, contiguous um, uh, streams. Mm-hmm. I had two three-year periods um, in, uh, in Delhi uh, in the middle, and uh, uh, but Mumbai was uh, the biggest one out of the three. But uh, these other the other places were also interesting. Uh, my my father was a uh, you might call him a quintessential entrepreneur, and uh, he was he was extremely good at uh, identifying what I would call offering gaps. So he was really good at uh, kind of scanning the radar and saying, "Oh, this is a product or service that does not exist." And I think there'll be, you know, a good demand for it. And uh, he was also extremely good at uh, starting businesses with zero money. Uh, so basically, uh, and in fact, that's a skill I picked up from him. Um, he used to he used to say, "You could you could put me naked on a rock in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I will start a business." And uh, and so so he had a he had a great ability to identify opportunities, 
and he had a great ability to basically create something from scratch which didn't exist and his uh, his downfall was that uh, he was a eternal optimist and he was very aggressive so when he identified an opportunity and uh, uh, the business would invariably take off uh, he would step on the gas with everything he had and so the common trait in all his businesses was that they were very highly levered and uh, like you know whatever the banks would give him to the max whatever he'd take all that and they had no uh, real staying power when the first headwinds came and uh, so basically um, in my childhood basically every 3 or 4 years um, my father would go bankrupt so there would be a great business which would have a um, a very rapid growth and then it would blow up and some of these things got pretty large they got up to like 3 or 400 people and uh, and and then then blew up and uh, so my my parents basically uh, were very poor financial planners so basically when times were good they lived like kings and when when the business went bankrupt we did not have money for rent we didn't have money for groceries it was absolutely we would hit bottom so basically when the business um was having difficulty we were personally having difficulties uh, so uh you know borrowing from friends and relatives and so on so there was this uh, kind of constant boom and bust and uh, but my dad would uh, would go through uh the the bankruptcy have nothing left and then he would find another opportunity so he uh, started businesses in maybe 10 different industries um uh in many cases he started businesses with no prior experience in those industries so uh for example um uh one time he was uh, so the last bankruptcy he he had in india was uh, when i was uh, 13 years old and um, and uh, at that point uh, and so just to just to go back a little bit so i think i think after i was after i was about 10 years old my brother was about 11 years old uh, we were like um, the board of directors for my dad so uh, i remember that we would sit down at night maybe when i was like 12 years old or something and the business was in very serious trouble and we were just trying to figure out how to make it run for one more day and we would you know all the caves are you know all the walls are caving in um all the creditors have their knives out you know everything is collapsing right and in the middle middle of all that all we are trying to do is keep it alive for one more day and then we would meet the next day next day at night and we try to figure out how to keep it alive for one more day and when i was about 16 or so i used to go on sales calls with my dad um and basically by the time i was 18 i had finished many many mbas i had finished uh, degrees in business that are not taught in any business school and in fact it was a, it was a very accidental experience because uh, 
the human brain uh, so one of the uh, quirky things about humans and our brain is uh, the brain is the most underdeveloped organ when we are born uh, the birth canal is too narrow and so basically the brain that comes out is almost like premature you can say and uh, it's the fastest going growing organ in the first 5 years of life so the neuron connections are going like crazy and you can see an infant you know one one month old is is utterly uh, you know dependent and uh, with almost no abilities and then that uh, that changes very rapidly so the brain goes through a very rapid growth in the first 5 years of life after about the age of 10 or 11 it is uh, optimally set up to specialize so from the age of 11 to about 20 the neuron connections actually get cut they are reduced and there are sections of the brain that are optimally set up to specialize so that is the only window of time in our entire lifetime from 11 to 20 when uh, it is the biggest bang for the buck to specialize now in our education systems what happen is we are forced to be jack of all trades from 11 to 20 or at least 11 to 18 or maybe in india 11 to 16 so that window basically closes for most humans without really now there are some humans what happens like bill gates he starts programming at 11 okay warren buffett he bought his first stock at 11 and in my case for and you know if you look at michelangelo you look at uh, leonardo da vinci you go back into their lives and uh, you will see there's a lot of activity taking place from 11 to 15 which is helping them specialize and someone like bill gates had probably done more than 10 or 15000 hours of programming before he was 20 so someone in their 40s who's done the similar amount of work from 20 to 40 cannot match bill gates uh because he did it in a window uh, where uh, things were just optimized so in my case it was accidental where my parents obviously had no clue about all this uh that i got a huge education in business while going through this you know jack of all trades stupid education system um but i was learning business on the side because of and, and it it weighed on our minds because these things were going under you know so you had to like figure out a lot of things and you really get really good at business when it's facing adversity i mean that's when you're like you know uh, trying to turn over every rock and whatever so um so my my sorry go ahead i think necessity is the mother of all invention yeah so uh so my 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 dad basically uh was uh, i'll give you an example for example at 13 um, when he went bankrupt at that time actually for the first time he took a job and he took a job in dubai so we he moved to dubai basically get some stability for the family and uh, one time he was um, taking a flight to dubai from mumbai and there was a jeweler sitting next to him on the flight they didn't know each other they just randomly sitting next to each other and the jeweler was explaining to my dad how uh, the uae had these laws where raw gold coming into the country had no duties or tariffs but finished gold had a 2% duty 
And he said that when the 2% duty is, is assessed on the entire gold finished, the duty on actually the labor content was very high. Because if you just look at it, so, so he was explaining how if, if the manufacturing that's done in India of this handcrafted Indian jewelry was done in Dubai, even with elevated labor cost because of this, um, this nuance, there was a widespread and that there was nobody in the UAE who was manufacturing jewelry in country at that time. So by the time the flight finished, my dad had decided to go into the jewelry business. He had no prior experience in the jewelry business and uh, to leverage this particular arbitrage. And uh, the guy he was with, you know, eventually turned out to be a crook. Uh, but uh, he taught my dad the jewelry business. My dad was very smart. He could pick up stuff. So by the time a year or 18 months later, that guy had left with a bunch of gold or whatever, my dad at least understood the business. And um, that business um, paid for my college education in the US. Um, so just to give you an example of kind of how he moved. And again, uh, uh, that business went bankrupt when I had about a year and a half left to finish college. Uh, because again, it was pumping on all cylinders was jamming as aggressively as he could. And uh, there was a downturn, it blew up uh, and so on. So um, basically that was a, kind of the formative experience in the early years. And uh, uh, I would not trade my parents for any other parents. They were amazing individuals and um, taught me wonderful things, raised us all very well. So um, overall, I would not change anything about the whole experience. Was your mother working or was she uh, at home? No, she was at home. She was at home. And, yeah. And uh, the other question I had related to this is uh, about investments. Were you all making any investments at all? I know you mentioned that when the times are good, you're not really investing much. Uh, there was no, no So my, yeah, my, my, my parents, uh, in fact, one of my, one of my deep regrets is that I think that by the time I, um, learned about Buffett and Munger and was kind of coming up to speed and all of that. Uh, my dad passed away about two years after that. So I actually never had a chance to really discuss capital allocation and the Buffett-Munger frameworks. And I think he would have, uh, he would have absorbed that pretty quickly. And I think it would have changed his trajectory quite a bit. Um, so uh, basically, no, I, I think what was happening is that when times were good, uh, we were living well, but everything was going back into the business. Okay. Yeah. You know, so it was basically uh, all eggs in one basket. Yeah. And so uh, uh, you were studying in the US, you did your graduation, et cetera. Where, where did you go next? What did you do next? And, and where did this whole idea come about? Was it accidental? Or was it like a planned move that, hey, you know what, I'm going to be really good at picking stocks or making investments? Yeah, so uh, basically, I my degree is in computer engineering. And I came to the U.S. Perfect sense. Perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I had no idea. You know, people just said computer heart. And I started in computer science. And there was more math in engineering. So I switched to engineering. And... Um, and I, I was on a student visa uh, at the time. And so my first priority was to get a green card. So 
Uh, and my my parents actually were in uh, very bad financial shape at that time. And so the uh, the immediate necessity was to get a job, support them, and so on. And um, so I started working uh, in the tech industry. And and then, um, you know, I had I had made made up my mind that uh, I had a good degree, I had a good job, and I was going to kind of rise in the corporate world. And I had very specifically decided that I'm never going to be an entrepreneur, um, mainly because I had seen a lot of trauma in childhood. And um, I I remember my uh, my dad was visiting me one time. Uh, I'd been working in engineering for a couple of years. And, you know, I used to be dressed pretty shabbily. You work in the lab, nobody cares how you dress, whatever. And he sat me down and he said, I have failed. I have failed as a father. He said, you wake up at like 9 a.m. Then you roll into work at 10 or 11 a.m. And uh, you dress, you know, with all these torn jeans and whatever. And my dad was always, a you know, perfect dresser, bow tie, suits. He was just immaculate, you know, throughout. And uh, so he he was, uh, uh, he, he was one time reading the um, company newsletter that came home, you know, the company I was working with. And he saw in the newsletter that they were opening an international division. The company was doing about 200 million in sales. They wanted international to bring in 200 million in about five or seven years. So they were going to invest a lot of money uh, growing their product and customer base outside the US. So they had just set up an international group. They were just talking about that in the newsletter. My dad said, uh, this guy, Peter Foos, in this newsletter, I want you to go, I want you to call Peter and I want you to go meet him. And I want you to tell Peter that you want to go work for him. So I told my dad, listen, you know, nothing head or tail about what I do, nothing head or tail about this company, nothing head or tail about Peter. He said, I said, Peter is not interested in me. So my dad said, that's okay. I just want you to call Peter. So every day when I'd come home, he would tell me, he would ask me, so did you call Peter? Okay. And I'd say, no. So I said, okay, let me get the old man off my back. I'll call Peter. Peter will tell me to like go fly a kite. And that'll be the end of that. So I call Peter and Peter's really interested to meet me. Okay. So I tell my dad, uh, he again asked me, I said, yeah, I call Peter. He actually wants to meet. He said, great, let's go shopping. Okay. So he said, you can't go meet him the way you dress every day. You're going to, I said, I can't show up to work in a suit and all that, whatever. He said, no, one day when you go meet Peter, you're going to, so he was really excited. We went shopping, he reset my wardrobe and I went to meet Peter and uh, Peter gave me a job. And at that time, the engineering stuff was kind of getting a little boring because we had shipped the product. There was no work. So I, I made the switch from engineering to international marketing. And uh, that was a very exhilarating three years because the group I joined, which was like maybe six people, about three years later had 800 people. And, uh, and we, had, uh, we had made a couple of acquisitions overseas and I was probably 80% of my time traveling all over the world and you know doing a mix of um, engineering and sales and marketing. It was a really exciting time. And I was single and, you know, 
like I would be on a business trip to Bangkok and then I'd spend the weekend there, you know, all company paid, everything paid. And uh, so after a couple of years, my dad is visiting me again. I'm dressed every day in a suit, you know, blah, blah. So he sits me down and says, it's time to quit. I said, you're the guy who told me to take this job. I took this job. I love this job. It's awesome. And this is just great. Everything is great about it. He said, look, all you're doing is making somebody else rich. You don't see any of the rewards of what you're doing. So I said, have you forgotten my childhood? I don't want the roller coaster ride. So he said, the roller coaster ride is what makes it exciting. And so he was able to convince me to start my first business. And I actually knew how to do that because of all the, all the you know, time and childhood and so on. So I started an IT services company and I kept my job and the startup till it had enough cash flow uh, where I could quit my job and I would be making more than what they were paying me. And, uh, and basically then about, um, um, and that business did really well. It was uh, growing really fast. It was the early 90s. And uh, accidentally, I think in 94, uh, my wife and I were vacationing in London um, in 94. And I was looking for something to read on the flight back. And uh, I picked up one of Peter Lynch's books, um, One Up on Wall Street. And I had never bought a stock before. I'd never made any investments before. I really didn't know head or tail about any of this stuff. But I really enjoyed Lynch's book. So then I looked up and found he has another book. So I read that. And then I was out of Peter Lynch books. There were only two books. And I wanted to keep going in this area. But he was talking in the second book about a guy named Warren Buffett. Beating the street. Richard. Yeah. yeah, I read One Up on Wall Street first and yeah. then Beating the Street was the second one. And um, he was talking about Buffett. I'd never heard about Buffett. And so I started to research Buffett and I was really lucky. The first couple of biographies on Warren Buffett had just come out. And then that led me to the Berkshire shareholder letters. And that opened up a huge world. And uh, I had an aha moment in 94 when I studied Buffett and the way he invested. And the only kind of professional managers that I knew about was the mutual fund industry. So when I looked at the, what Buffett was saying about how to invest, and I looked at the way the mutual fund industry functioned, the two were night and day. You know, Buffett says, you know, you have this 20, 20 punch card in a lifetime, you buy like 20 stocks, you know, each one is a big decision. And the typical mutual fund has, 100 stocks and 80% annual turnover. They're like dancing in our stocks all the time. And their results reflected that dancing. So when I looked at all the mutual funds, I would find like 80, 90% of them did worse than the index. And so I had a notion, I said, if somebody just follows Buffett's approach to investing of just being, understanding the business, making a decent bet, sticking to it, understanding intrinsic value, circle of competence and so on, one should be able to do better than the professionals. And uh, so that theory really has no merit till there's some proof or execution behind it. And in 94, I had sold a portion of, small portion of my company 
after taxes, I had $1 million. And um, I really didn't need the money. The company was doing well. And it was an extra $1 million. First time I had money in the bank. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll take this million. I'll start investing it using Buffett's frameworks. Uh, I was going to buy like 10 stocks, you know, 10% bets. And, um, and I want to see what happens, you know, and this is as of my day job, I'm still running my IT company. And um, in about uh, five years, that million has turned into 13 million. And, uh, and uh, basically uh, the, uh, it was like a, you know, 70% annualized rate of return it, exceptionally well. And uh, so I said, well done, Monish. We knew you could do this. And, um, and I, I was probably spending like maybe 15, 20 hours a week on investment research and analysis. And I was spending probably 40 hours, 50 hours a week on my business. And I was getting less and less interested because my, what had happened with the IT company was it was up to about 150, 170 people. My job had turned into human resource management. I was basically just managing a bunch of political games played by a bunch of vice presidents. And I had no interest in that. So it got to the point where I basically didn't even feel like going to work. And so what I did in uh, 99 is I started a search for a CEO uh, for the company so I could leave the company because I really didn't have any interest in being there. And I decided I'm going to, um, my first plan was to go work for Warren Buffett. So I wrote him a letter offering my services for free. He wrote back saying, thanks, but no thanks. And, uh, and then my friends, basically, I used to give them stock tips, uh, you know, after I'd bought something and they had done really well. So they came to me and said, listen, we want you to manage money for us. And uh, you, you tell us to buy something, we buy something and it doubles, we sell it. And then we don't see you and it's already random. So they wanted to give me money and they said, you manage it. And uh, so I set up a Bri Funds in 99, really as a hobby uh, for me to invest. It was a total of a million dollars between me and eight friends. And uh, about a year and a half later, you know, we had a 70% year the first year. Um, I had brought in a CEO who had taken over my business about a couple of months after he started, he said someone wanted to buy it. Um, so we sold the business because he was going to get a new deal and again, another bite of the apple. And, um, and so in 2000, I decided, let me not treat the fund as a stepchild. Let's treat it as a real business and try to grow and scale it. And uh, so for Bri Funds, then I started to, uh, you know, pay more attention to it in terms of, you know, adding more, more investors and assets and so on. And it grew and did really well. So that's kind of how the journey got going. Uh, what a fascinating journey. I have a, uh, a few uh, questions related to this. One is uh, 99 is a pretty peculiar year to launch a fund because it's on the eve of what would turn out to be one of the biggest crashes we've seen in a long time. The TMT bubble burst in the first quarter of March, April of 2020. And you yeah. still had a very good year. So basically the, the NASDAQ peaked on March 9th, 2020. And uh, when I started investing, um, almost all my investments were tech investments. 
because that's what I knew well. Okay. And uh, I could probably see the bubble not very much in advance of the others, maybe three to six months ahead of the others. But by, by the middle of 99, uh, I was very convinced that this thing was going to end badly. I, I didn't know when it would end and how it would end. So what I did is I did a complete 180. Uh, so uh, the funds launched on July 1st, 99. And uh, what was happening is the day the NASDAQ peaked on March March 9th, 2000, was the same day that Berkshire Hathaway hit a multi-year low. So um, while one portion of the market was very frenzied and going crazy, pets.com and everything else, basic brick and mortar businesses got very cheap. You know, funeral homes, steel mills, Berkshire Hathaway. And they got like single digit multiples. You know, I remember I, I, remember I, I bought a funeral home for two times earnings. Um, and so people were literally selling basic companies and dumping everything into pets.com, right? And uh, so in, uh, in uh, 99, when the fund started, I completely switched to classic Ben Graham, uh, deep value, uh, which actually I'd never done before then. And uh, first year, uh, we were up 70%. Uh, and the NASDAQ started to crash. So from July 1, 99 to June 30, 2000, I was up. And already in the first, the last three months, uh, the NASDAQ was cratering. The NASDAQ took a, it was a crash in slow motion. It took about two years when it went from 5,000 to 1,200. So it gradually went down. But basically, from 99 to 2007, Pabrai funds did uh, 37% a year before fees, uh, no down years. And, um, and basically, the disparity between us and the indices was massive. And I wasn't doing anything special. All I was doing is just, ba- I was, I was uh, looking for companies uh, which had very stable uh, cash flows and operations, extremely boring. And no one's interested. So I'll give you an example. Like in, uh, I think in um, 2004, I ran into this steel company called Ipsco. And Ipsco was uh, uh, trading at about $45 a share. Uh, They had $15 a share in cash. Uh, They had no debt. And these guys were building uh, the kind of steel they built was tubular steel, you know, kind of like what goes into pipelines. So they had um, an order book that went out several years, and they had very visible cash flows. They had publicly stated that the next two years cash flows were fifteen dollars a share each. And so the stock is at forty-five. There's fifteen of cash. If you take the next two years cash flow, you're going to have forty-five dollars of cash. And the plant and equipment and everything else is free. So it's a very cyclical business. We don't know what the cash flows are after two years. But I said, I just want to buy the stock. And let's see what happens after two years. So a year later, they announced, okay, one more year, we will have $15 a share in cash flow. And by now, the stock is at like 70. And, um, and then I was thinking, okay, you know, this is cyclical. Maybe we should... Uh, you know, 
let it go. We made our money and all that. And then it gradually drifted up to about 90 and I was getting ready to sell it. It was a double in less than two years. And uh, I woke up one day, there was an announcement that some Swedish company was buying it for 160. And um, so the stock immediately goes to like 155. I don't even wait for the deal to close. Uh, we exit and move on. And um, I don't know why that Swedish company didn't come in two years before that, when it was at 45, you know, but you know, this is the way the world works. And uh, so it was things like that, you know, it was like, there was no one's interested in the steel business and whatever else and uh, so on. So it was just kind of classic Ben Graham mathematical games. And uh, you guys go from there. My memory of uh, March 2020 is, I don't have the dates right, but, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway annual letter came out. And he again spoke of, you know, he says the same thing effectively every year, right? And mm -hmm. then someone wrote a piece, and I'm sure I have it somewhere in my archives, and someone said Buffett doesn't get it. He's lost it. Yeah, yeah. He was on the cover of Barron's, uh, you know. <laughs> Buy tech, Warren. What's up, Warren? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, and you know, and over time, I've, uh, I've, you know, some of these guys are so smart. Uh, Warren Buffett, Munger. You've got to listen to them because when, when even you know someone's like questioning their basic understanding, you know, irrationality is the dominant emotion, and that's when yeah. you you know make a move. Yeah. So that's never left me. And uh, and it's happened again and again, right? It's happened multiple times uh, in the last 30, 35 years. Uh, it's a great way to uh, get a signal on what one should be doing. But uh, did, did you get to buy Berkshire Hathaway then when it hit its uh, low in the past 2020? I've, I've never had uh, much Berkshire Hathaway. I've occasionally had it in the funds. Uh, uh -huh. But there was so much other stuff that was way more, uh, yeah. uh, way more mispriced. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and uh, more interesting. So so generally, I was uh, I was uh, buying uh, you know tanker companies and funeral homes, and, old economy, know, old economy stuff. They were they were very uh, very mispriced. Yeah, it's amazing, right? And 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 actually, just to just to continue the new the story further, so uh, did very well till two thousand seven, and then the financial crisis I did not see coming. So from 2007 to 2009, the funds went down probably around 65, 67%. And the markets went down probably, you know, 37% or so in that period. So we, we went down a lot more uh, than the markets did. And, um, and uh, I remember in like 2008 and 2009, um, commodities had been crushed, you know, commodity stocks and commodities. And I was selling P of three to buy P of two. You know, that's kind of what my trades were. And um, so I, I remember in 2009, after we bottomed in March 2009, uh, we were up, uh, I think, 140% for the year in 2009. And then gradually um, that recovery got underway uh, where, you know, we started to get our money back and so on. And uh, one of the things I should have done uh, is probably around 2012 or so, I should have switched back to what I used to do originally, growth investing. So usually uh, the best 
way to invest is to buy businesses that will you know grow over time. That's usually going to be your. Uh, it's just that sometimes you get periods where there's such extreme euphoria, where that strategy is not going to work uh, because you know you're going to be buying things at a hundred times earnings or whatever, and it's just not going to work very well. Uh, but I should have, what I should have done is, but by that time, so I'd been running this Graham playbook now for 13 years and the playbook had worked really well. So it was just very comfortable, right? So I just kind of continued and I did not actually make the switch uh, over to uh, back to the growth stocks, et cetera, till around 2020. Uh, so I. I basically, um, uh, I would say I was probably eight years or so behind. Uh, now, you know, the thing is that there were things I was doing which still worked really well. So, for example, in 2012, I made an investment in a company called Fiat Chrysler, you know, uh, and and uh, that was a huge multi-bagger we made over the years. Um but inside Fiat Chrysler, which at that time had a $5 billion market cap. So in 2012, Fiat Chrysler has a $5 billion market cap and $135 billion in revenue. Okay, so it's trading at like less than four times, uh, uh, less than like, you know, 4% of revenue. Okay, and, um, and they had brought in a rock star CEO and I could see that a lot of things would change. Inside Fiat Chrysler, a piece I didn't pay much attention to was 80% of Ferrari. So they owned 80% of Ferrari. Um, so just to give you a, a sense, I didn't capture all of it, but basically in effect about one third of that market cap was attributed to Ferrari. So out of the 5 billion, about one and a half billion was attributed to Ferrari. Uh, Ferrari is now about a 50 billion market cap by itself. And then Fiat is also a lot of dividends and such and gone. So what I'm saying is that even though I didn't switch to growth investing till later, there were bets like Fiat Chrysler, uh, bets in India, like Rain Industries and so on, which did uh, really well, huge multi-baggers. Um, and then uh, more recently, um, I made the switch, but I made the switch somewhat carefully because we still had in 22, a lot of euphoria, you know, the bubble popped. Uh, we again um, got to uh, crazy valuations. Um, and so that's where we are today. I, I want to ask a question about the 2007 and 2009 period. Uh, I'm sure you thought about it a lot. Why do you think you missed it? That there is a euphoria happening and you could get caught on it? Well, I mean, I think that um, in that period of uh, seven to nine, there were a very small number of humans, you can count on probably fingers of one hand, who actually saw the whole bubble. You know, you see in the movie, The Big Short. Um, and, you know, just to give you a, a side story uh, about the, the bubble, you know, Michael Burry in The Big Short. So um, I know that God loves me. And I'll give you some evidence of why God loves me. So in uh, 2008, I'm making a trip to San Jose, California. And uh, Michael Burry's fund and Michael Burry is based in San Jose, California. 
and I don't know him, but I know of him. And uh, so I contact him and say, hey, Michael, you don't know me, but you know, I'm a fund manager and I'm going to be in San Jose and do you want to grab coffee? And uh, he says, yeah, just come by my office. Okay. So this is like, you know, October of 2008. Okay. And I go to Michael Burry's office and, you know, you've seen the guy playing the drums and all, you know, <laughs> So I, 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 I go to Michael Burry's office and he's got these huge stacks of paper and he doesn't even, you know, doesn't even like, you know, say hello, welcome or any of that. He launches straight into CDSs. He says, do you know what a credit default swap is? I said, no, I have no idea. And I'm not even looking to know what it is. You know, I'm not really interested. Then he goes into this huge detailed drill down with me on CDSs and CDS squared and, uh, you know, the tranches and how to short it and how uh, real estate's going to blow up and everything's going to blow up and the whole Western world is going to blow up. And, and this is the way you play it. Okay. So now all God could do is he could take the horse to the water. Okay. He took the horse to the epicenter of the best lake. Okay, the horse was too dumb to drink. Okay, so the horse was taken to the water, but the horse did not drink. Okay, and so I came out of Burry's office saying, okay, that was weird. What the, <laughs> what the hell? You know, we're going to kind of move on. And, uh, and of course, then, you know, exactly what he was saying proceeds to happen, you know. And so the, it was a kind of a, um, a very... Um, uh, Interesting experience. Yeah. So I, I, I did not see um, the, the downturn being as severe as it ended up being. Um, I think the, uh, I just, my, my way of investing is I really don't spend any time on macro. You know, I'm focused on particular businesses where those businesses might be growing, going, and that itself is a complicated thing. Figuring out the future of one business is complicated. Figuring out the future of an economy, you know, there's just a few uh, humans that are gifted enough to do that. I'm not one of them. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the, I would say that I was able to see the 2000 bubble uh, mainly because I had made some private investments in 98, 99, uh, which were in effect participating in the bubble. And those had already blown up. So uh, by the time the fund started, I'd already seen the movie on the private markets. The public markets has not, had not fully woken up to the fact that this whole thing was a pack of cards. Um, so I'm not going to be a guy who's going to be able to see, uh, you know, I would say that even Buffett and Munger say that sometimes things are obvious and you can call it. I mean, I would say, you know, bubble in crypto, uh, we can call it, you know, uh, but uh, you might even say a bubble in snow, snowflake and things like that. Uh, you can call some of those. But for the most part, uh, usually you don't get these extremely clear signals when bubbles are underway. When did you first hear of this COVID? And how did you think through it, what you should do? And what did you actually end up doing? Yeah, COVID was another one where I I think I um, 
did not really understand the severity of COVID. So if we look at someone like Bill Ackman, he really got it. He got it really well uh, in terms of, of COVID and what was going to happen. He created um, a whole controversy around it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. So I think I think when when COVID was when the first news of COVID was hitting, I just thought, okay, you know, this will be something where you know we might have a few weeks of um, lockdown, whatever. The virus will die out in the population, and you know, eventually we'll have a vaccine. I did not expect uh, anything spectacular out of it and actually when they um, deliberately shut down the whole economy um, that kind of blew my mind you know I, I said this is worse than 0809 because 0809 we're not deliberately trying to I mean the shutdown of the U.S. economy and global economy on purpose um, is unprecedented it's never happened I mean we had a we had a the Spanish flu, you know, 100 years ago, no one shut down anything at that time. Um, and so it was not within, you know, my realm of ability to think that humans are going to deliberately shut down an entire economy. That just blew my mind. And so I think as COVID was unfolding, uh, I was as surprised as anyone else. And I was trying my best to basically uh, try to make sure that the businesses that we owned um, were not going to get washed away. So in general, one of the things to remember about business, and you know, I saw this with my dad when I was growing up, is businesses are very fragile. Uh, almost all businesses are very fragile. I mean, if, if a business loses revenue for a month, something like 95% won't be around after that, you know, so the mortality rate, it's like cutting off oxygen. You know, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates uh, took the view uh, very early in Microsoft that he wanted Microsoft to have enough cash so it could run for two years with no revenue. Okay, and Microsoft built a, uh, a cash reserve that matched that. 99% of businesses don't have no, any ability to do. You know, they just don't have the favorable economics to ever generate that kind of cash or have that kind of staying power. So when you have something like COVID, when you're shutting down things and uh, you're not allowing a business to get revenue, I mean, you know, airlines, hotels, restaurants, you know, these were like immediate casualties. And, uh, but then, and, what, what saved a lot of them was just incredible amounts of government support. But if, if we didn't have that support, uh, I mean, I think the economy even today would be in, in terror. So the, the policy response uh, was exceptional, uh, really mind-blowing, actually. But someone like me, I'm no good at these things. If I may offer a, a, a view on this, a lot of people believe they called the COVID trade right. And I believe they were just plain lucky because no one knew how it's going to turn out. Right. So they went out and in and they thought we timed it. It's pure fluke. 
uh, and I remember Munger gave a statement because I think Buffett, there was a statement from Buffett very quickly that he'll not be speaking till the AGM. So mm-hmm. there was no need to wait for Buffett to speak. But Munger, I think, did a call or he spoke to CNBC. I don't recollect. And he said, it, if we came out on the other side of this crisis with more cash than we have now, then that's the great scenario. Or something, something to that effect. Basically placed utmost importance on having cash on the balance. Like the point you're mm-hmm. making. Right? Sure. Yeah. And he has the vision. Yeah, Berkshire, Berkshire is really built. So just to give you an example, Berkshire's cash is not in any bank. I know, I know. I have, okay. a, I have a screenshot of that. <laughs> yeah. in, in they've, they've never had, they've never had the cash in banks because Warren has had a perspective that even J.P. Morgan, yeah. uh, basically, you know, it's not safe. His perspective is he wants to make sure the cash is absolutely and certainly there. He's not trying to maximize the the yield on it. So it's all sits in very short term treasuries. Short term treasuries. So I I actually have a March, April 2020 snapshot of the presentation he made on the 1st of May, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was $107 billion of cash or what is the amount? Like crazy amount of money all in short-term treasury bills. Yes. Oh my God, that's the solution for everyone. (laughs) And they've been running like that for 50 years. That's amazing. You know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Moving on. Uh, do you recollect which was your first investment that you made? First stock? Well, the, the, very, the very first stocks uh, I bought, uh, so uh, there's, a, there's two answers to that. I think uh, some of your audience might uh, care about some of the stocks I bought in India. Uh, and, um, and then, so the, in the US, they were tech investments and they were tech investments mainly in software companies because I was very familiar with them. So we were doing a lot of services for uh, relational databases, Sybase, Oracle, um, and so on. So I knew those businesses well. I knew what their growth engines were. Uh, So we were generally invested in those types of things. But in um, in the, towards the end of 94, early 95, I, uh, opened an account uh, with Kotak in India. Uh, and at that time, there was no DMAT. Uh, there was no Kotak bank. Uh, and actually, my banking, which Kotak introduced me to, was Union Bank of India. So they said, you're going to transfer funds to Union Bank. Then Union Bank will give it to our securities trading arm. We'll buy the stuff and custody it. And then when we sell it, when you instruct us, we'll send it back to Union Bank, and they can send it to you in dollars. And um, so I remember I, I didn't put much. I had about a million dollars with me. I only invested 1% of that in India. Uh, actually, 2%, about $20,000. Okay. And uh, half of that, $10,000, I put into Satyam computers. And this was probably about 10 years before anything was wrong with Satyam. Satyam was a perfectly normal company at that time. Uh, all the books and everything were, were clean and such. And I knew the business well uh, because I used to meet them. Uh, they were trying to do business with me. Their biz dev teams would meet me. And I could see how they were growing in the U.S. and, and all of that. It was, you know, growing at about 70, 80% a year. But the 
you know, if you remember the early 90s in India, mid 90s, Satyam's market cap was less than the value of their Hyderabad real estate. Uh, so just the office space and all that they had, there was no value actually being ascribed to a business that was growing about 80% a year with high margins. And I remember the uh, Kotak analyst gave me a report that Kotak had done on Satyam. I looked at the, I looked at the report and said, this is total nonsense. You, you don't even understand what the business is all about. I said, you're not even... Like the stock was at 40 rupees and she had a target of 55 rupees. Okay. And the, the Hyderabad real estate was something like 70 rupees a share. And it was making something like 10 rupees a share growing 40, 50%, 60% a year. So anyway, I put, I put $10,000 into Satyam. And then, uh, you know, when the bubble, my, so I bought, um, four stocks in India at that time. I bought Satyam, Kotak, um, Blue Dart, and Skypack, Skypack Courier. Okay. Um, and basically my, uh, I was only going to buy Satyam, Kotak, and Blue Dart. And my thesis on uh, Blue Dart and uh, Skypack was very simple, that the Indian postal system was useless. And if you wanted to get a package from anywhere to anywhere, you had to use private couriers. And there were two listed companies at that time, it was Blue Dot and Skypack. And so I said, there's, as the Indian economy grows, these two are huge beneficiaries of that. As it turned out, Skypack went nowhere, eventually went to zero. It basically disappeared for the most part. Um, and, uh, and by the, by 99, actually, in, I remember in January, 2000, so I got physical share certificates of all these stocks. They're kind of falling apart with all these signatures and stuff on them. I just stuck them at the bottom of my desk drawer. I said, never need to open this drawer. We can keep this forever. I noticed that in January 2000, Satyam is trading at like 6,000 rupees a share from 40 rupees. It's gone up 150, 150x. And... Um, and I told some relatives of mine, you know, buy, buy uh, Satyam and so on. Their whole day is to start in the morning by looking at the newspaper, what is happening. And uh, I told them, listen, I'm going to sell Satyam because when I look at the math, there's no way to justify this valuation. They said, no, 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 no you don't understand the business. This company is going to go to 50,000 rupees a share. Okay, it's going to keep going. <laughs> okay, they're trying to explain the IT business to me. So anyway, I, I was also concerned because I look at these share certificates that I had for Satyam. They're like pieces of paper that are like falling apart. So I said, I don't even know if I send it to India, these are fake or real or what. And I don't trust the Indian government will actually allow me to repatriate. I gave them 10,000. I'll be pulling out one and a half million on Satyam alone. Forget the other stocks. I said, I don't think they'll let me even pull the money back. So I sent all the shares to Kotak as I sell all the shares. Okay. They sold the shares and I got like some 1.4 million in proceeds. So then I said, move it to Union Bank. Okay. And I told the Union Bank, convert it to dollars and wire it to me. So the bank manager says to me, uh, you know, Mr. Pabrai, it's near the end of the month. It will really make me look good if I do the wire like on the second or third. It was like the 27th. I said, please be happy. Wire it on the third. No problem. Okay. And 
on the third money is in my us account no taxes no nothing everything's fine all done i said wow this works and then you know um, duda skypack and uh, kota for five years had done nothing they were just sitting flat and one of the most stupid things i did was i said okay like i told you god loves me i said god loves me but i don't think he loves me so much i said he gave me 20000 rupees in dollars in india became 1.4 million i said these others are still sitting at 10000 so fine just close the positions move on so i sent all those shares to india and i told kotak sell all these shares and again i got my 10000 dollars back um actually god loved me more if i had just paid attention so kotak went up about 500 x from there so i had put only about 2500 dollars into kotak but anything at 500 x is is a big number and blue dot went up a similar amount 3 400 x and um, i remember what happened is that they sent me one share certificate back 100 shares of blue dot and they said this is a fake certificate so i said mr kotak you are the ones who bought these shares for me if it is fake you are responsible they said no no we have no such responsibility this is your problem so they don't have the same liability law like this like it, like the us does so they sent me these 100 shares and the 100 shares sat in my drawer for like 15 years and i every time i'd look at the shares i'd say ye mere ko fake nahi lag raha i don't think this is fake so by that time i had started investing in india and i had a relationship with kotak they are custodians in india and i told the thing i said i didn't tell him it's fake or anything i said look i have 100 shares of ludart and uh, i would like to sell them they said look uh, we need to demat it and all that we need to open account and all that so i said okay let's go through the process so i went through the process they sold the shares it actually wasn't fake and i got like i think about like 8 or 9 lakhs for that 100 shares okay <laughs> which was like a 3 or 400 x but it was a small piece of the of the pie and the the big the big lesson i got from all of that is that you know when you find yourself in the happy situation of the ownership of the fraction of a great business just like munger says just sit on your ass there's nothing else to do so there was no reason for me to sell those things uh even now like you know we look at uh investor like rakesh junjunwal right i mean great investor passed away last year he had a total of 400 dollars when he was 25 years old and he started investing he was a chartered accountant and he passed away with 5.8 billion he never managed outside money and he started asaka air but none of the money came from businesses he started you know all of this was from passive investing and if you ignore everything rakesh did so in 2003 he put about 4% of his net worth into titan right and he just kept it and that 4% which was only about um 3.4 million dollars at that time that he put into titan 
with dividends is approaches more than 2 billion so even if rakesh was everything else went to zero he was a useless at everything else the only thing he had to get right was the titan purchase and more importantly the 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 decision to hold that's it and uh, so it's a very forgiving business when uh, when i when i'm i'm listening to you and you know you're narrating these stories uh you know and and with, you know you have all the humility you know there's there's all factors playing into your decisions but uh you talk about graham a little bit the graham approach uh you talk about uh you know uh, how how you pick stocks you spend all those hours so if you were to so i don't want you to explain us your thought process uh, you know that's there's too much for someone to uh, absorb in this podcast can you sort of talk to us about two three four things which are like really the key things one should look at to minimize the chance of going wrong maybe in a stock uh, picking decision yeah so i think the uh, the best way to approach investing is what i would called anomaly based investing okay so basically we are in the business of looking at anomalies we are in the business of looking at things that make no sense and because we are in auction driven markets like what i saw with satyam in 95 right it just made no sense on any metric that it should be priced like that and um, so like for example a few years back i started making trips to turkey and uh turkey is even now uh i mean last year the turkish market was up like 120% in dollars uh it had a huge year but even after going up that much it is one of the cheapest markets in the world everyone and their brother has exited turkey no one has any interest in turkey um the inflation rate is 80% um in 2019 i visited this company in turkey where the market cap was 16 million dollars 16 and the liquidation value liquidation value was 800 million okay so and uh, the liquidation value was one of the easiest things to figure out so this company has 12 million square feet of prime warehouse space which is 99% leased inflation index leases to people like ikea amazon carrefour mercedes toyota dupont etc okay like pristine client list and um to build a warehouse in turkey on average it costs 80 dollars a square foot so up 80 dollars low 12 million square feet low that's 960 million dollars there was 200 million of debt on their books it's worth 760 million market cap is 16 million okay so i remember my turkish friend i had him take me to businesses that he owned i said i only want to see businesses that are already in your portfolio don't take me to some company you have not invested so he owned this company so i i asked him is it a fraud i said so he said no i mean i while we were driving to meet the owners of the business he said no it's 
good guys running it and i met the father and son who run the business they came across as perfectly honest smart business people to me really smart actually and not only was the value there then i spent an afternoon visiting all the warehouses and all and then i saw 16 million dollars when i tried to buy it there'll be no stock available okay but because turkey is a market filled with gamblers and the trading volumes are extremely high people basically buy stocks at 10 o'clock and they sell at 3 okay they their holding period that's that's it they don't even hold overnight okay it's a it's a gambling den so buffett has a quote he's saying the stock market is a mechanism to transfer wealth from the active to the inactive okay it is, could not be truer in turkey so i started buying the shares and for about less than 8 million dollars i got one third of the company okay so now at the time when i was buying the shares it was 5 lira to 1 dollar today it is 19 lira to 1 dollar the lira has collapsed okay in dollars the market cap has gone from 16 million to 350 million in the last 4 years okay now what has happened to liquidation value i was just in turkey for 2 weeks is it's at least 1 and 1/2 billion now rents have gone up a lot building material prices have gone up all these things have gone up so the 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 price has moved up but the value the and they are very smart capital allocators they have done a bunch of smart things and they've increased the value so even after we've had this big run up we still have something that is trading at like 1/4 of what i think is and the thing is they will keep increasing the value of the business so all these years of all these arrows in the back that i have taken what i have learned is this company in turkey we just have to do one thing which is never ever sell it you know just it's very boring it does nothing it just sits there we are happy to let it sit and it's it doesn't matter what the lira does because cement prices go up and steel prices go up and concrete prices go up and land prices go up and rents go up and so it is automatically inflation indexed and in turkey there's one business after another like this so i'll give you another example which i think i just kind of gives you a example of so when you say you know when people are trying to invest we have a company in india called varun beverages okay and varun is the pepsi bottler for most of india right i mean i think other than andhra and uh, kashmir they have the rest of india varun i think last time i looked the market cap is about like 11 billion dollars okay they their volume last year was a little less than 700 million cases so just remember that 700 million cases and 11 billion and it's growing you know i mean it's a great business and it'll grow a lot um there is a coke bottler in turkey uh, which is bottling for coke but it's not just bottling in turkey it's bottling in about a dozen countries where they have the exclusive rights for the whole country one of the countries they have the exclusive rights to bottle is pakistan okay so this company in turkey has the exclusive bottling rights in pakistan in pakistan 
51% of the Coke bottler is owned by the Coca-Cola company in Atlanta. And 49% is owned by this Turkish company. Okay. Coca-Cola Enterprises in Atlanta uh, sold, recently agreed to sell the 51% to this Turkish company for $300 million. So basically, the Pakistan bottler was valued at $600 million. Half was sold for $300 million. In Pakistan, the Coke bottler volume is 400 million cases a year. Okay. Varun is little under 700 million. So let's double it. So 600 million is the value for 400 million cases, 1.2 billion for 800 million cases. Okay. There may be some difference in the growth rate, but the bottler in Pakistan is sitting at 10% of the valuation of the bottler in India. And Coke is a better brand. So between Coke and Pepsi, you know, people will go for Coke. So it's actually the more dominant, better brand. So that now that Coke bottler in Turkey, they have operations in all these countries, including Turkey. So the the market cap of that business, which is about 1.6 billion cases a year, is 2.8 billion. It is one-fourth of the value of Varun Beverages at almost three times the size, right? So anomaly. It's an anomaly. So one of three things is true. Varun is overvalued or the Coke bottler is undervalued or a combination of the two, right? And when we can look at cash flows, we can look at many other things. But the the thing is that uh, even in Pakistan and in India, the per capita consumption of Coke and Pepsi is extremely low. If we fast forward 10 years or 20 years, the per capita numbers will go up a lot. The population will go up. All of those numbers will change. So in both places, it's a good business. Varun may even grow faster because Pakistan's having all kinds of issues. But 10 to 1 difference in value, you know, one is trading at 50 times trailing earnings. The other is trading at nine times trailing earnings. So what we are looking for in investing is things that when you look at them, you say, you are astonished. Okay. If you don't get astonished when you look at a stock about something, just pass. Wait for something else that astonishes you. Because in auction-driven markets, you will find astonishing things. It will not happen every day, every week, every year. But you only need one titan. You only need one Resa, so one Coke bottler. You don't need too many things. One blue dart. Just focus on the astonishing. I love the way you put that. Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, you quoted Charlie Munger, just sit on sit on your ass after you bought the stock, right? Uh, but there does come a time sometimes when you have to sell a stock. So uh, when and what sort of do you look for as a signal that it's time to get rid of a stock? So selling is a lot harder than buying. I've heard that. I have made. I have made many, many more selling mistakes Mm -hmm. than buying mistakes. 
Okay. So what I have learned after all these arrows in the back on selling is basically be extremely reluctant to sell. Okay. So if a, if a company, if a company's valuation is fully priced, it's not time to sell. If it's overpriced, it's still not time to sell. It has to be absolutely and totally egregious, where you cannot come up with any way, cash flows and the valuation, to bridge the two with even heroic assumptions. So basically, you know, a business is worth the sum of future cash it'll produce from now till judgment day, discounted back. If some company is earning $1 million a year and the valuation is $200 million, you bought it for $8 million. Now it's $200 million. It, it probably should not have been sold at even $30 million or $40 million or $50 million because that is within the realm of reason. Past $100 million, $150 million, you can let it go. So, but basically it has to be at an extreme. So we, we need to be basically extremely averse to selling. Now, if we have bought something where we, have, where we have very clear evidence, the business is low quality, the people are low quality, the competition is intense. Absolutely. You can, so we have to, the important thing with selling is separate the signal from the noise. So when you are convinced you have real signal and you don't have noise, a company can have a bad quarter, two quarters, three quarters, that's noise. But if there is integrity of management in question, if there is uh, competitors eating their lunch and they've kind of lost their competitor advantage, they're no longer the low-cost producer and all these things. So when things become secular and you're convinced they become secular, so you one thing about selling is you don't need to rush. You can be sloppy on the selling. So if you find something is overvalued, whatever, take your time. Take your time to convince yourself that it's truly egregious. If it's just simply overvalued, don't do anything. Uh, and, it's and, a great way. It's a great way to make your broker starve. <laughs> make them starve. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have to. I know uh, we don't have much time, and I have a bunch of questions I have to cover with you. What are your thoughts on investing beyond stocks? Do you do gold? Do you do property? Do you do debt? Is there anything else that comes to mind that you think people should look at? and try and study and get good at and make some money? Yeah, so uh, one, there's one thing un very unusual about the stock market, which does not exist in other markets. Um, the stock markets are auction-driven. Um, it's buyers and sellers coming together in a marketplace and setting prices. Auction-driven markets have a very uh, specific peculiarity. Um, they get uh, depressed at times and they get euphoric at times. And if I just, you know, randomly throw a dart at any stock listed on the Bombay Stock Exchange and I look at the 52-week range on that, it will be like 
60 to 130 mm-hmm. or 100 to 250. Mm-hmm. Just any stock, you know, even if you look at Reliance or mm-hmm. any blue chip stock, you will see a pretty wide range between the 52 week low and the 52 week high. Now, let's say I have a broker friend of mine, a real estate broker friend of mine, and I own an apartment in Mumbai, okay, in car. And I tell my broker friend, uh, listen, uh, I'm going to call you sometimes. Just tell me what my flat is worth. So he said, yeah, sure, no problem. So you call him on January 1st. He said, Kitna dam hai? what's my flat worth? He says, your flat is worth six crores. You're feeling really good. He said, okay, thank you. Then you call him the next day. What's my flat worth? He said, it's worth six crores. Mm-hmm. Then you call him the third day. He says, listen, idiot. It's still worth six crores. Okay. And because he's your friend, he tolerates you. He tolerates every day this stupid call you make to him. And every day, just write down the price he gives you. Finally, after 30 days, he tells you, oh, thoda, there's some movement. It is um, 6.1 crores. Okay. So you write down the 6.1. You keep calling him. When you do the whole analysis for the whole year, price of your flat has varied between six and seven crores for the whole year at the most. Okay. It has not gone to three crores to nine crores. But if that flat was a listed company, sitting inside a listed company, it would be between three and nine crores. So just the taking the same asset and converting it into pieces of paper and shares and all that causes this attenuation. So when we look at non-auction driven markets or non-auction driven assets, so let's say, for example, I'm a private equity investor. I'm buying and selling whole businesses. What's going to happen is I'm going to be facing an intelligent seller. So it's an intelligent buyer facing an intelligent seller. Unless there are like, crazy things like COVID or something going on, you will end up with an intelligent price. Otherwise, there'll be no deal. So when you have an intelligent buyer, now, when I was looking at this company in Turkey, which was 16 million market cap, and I told the owners of the business, I'll give you 25 million, please give me the whole business. They would have just laughed me out of their office. Okay, but in the market, it's available. The whole business cannot be bought for 25 million, but 10%, 20%, 30% can be bought at that price. Okay. So I the only time I have looked at doing something other than auction-driven markets, because I think they this particular nuance of publicly traded stock exchanges, all of that gives us a way to invest, which is not available in all other asset classes. Okay, it's not available in gold. It's not available in uh, buying whole businesses. Uh, the one, uh, the one time I used this knowledge for other purposes was in the '90s when I was when I was investing in tech. I used to notice that some software companies were trading at very high multiples. Like I knew they were growing a lot, but the trailing PE was more than hundred. So the company is growing 30, 40%. Maybe it's undervalued, possible. Okay, but I can't bring myself to pay you know, 100 times trailing earnings. But what I took that as a signal to mean is that it has high growth. So what I did is like there was a company called PeopleSoft, HR software. 
it required a lot of customization to implement in Fortune 500 companies. I decided I will set up a PeopleSoft practice only because I saw that the valuation is so high. Now, I don't even know how to spell PeopleSoft. So to do a PeopleSoft practice, I need to have a practice leader. And a practice leader at that time would cost like quarter million, 300,000. So I decided in my business, I'll take a chance. I said 300,000, we can take a bet. If it doesn't go, we'll see. So I placed an ad for a PeopleSoft practice leader. And within a few days, I got connected to a guy and he looked exceptional, great guy, Paul Yates. And uh, Paul Yates basically, you know, we gave him like a quarter million base salary and some upside, whatever. And he was going to start in two weeks. Okay. Now, when he starts with my company, I have no business in PeopleSoft. On day one, it's going to be burning 20, 25,000 a month. So one week before he starts, Paul Yates calls me and says, the client where I'm working is asking if my new employer will give me to them on a consulting basis to continue working on so I said, Paul, um, what, what would they be paying? He said, they'll, they'll be paying about $3,000 a day. Okay. So I said, Paul, tell them yes. Okay. So now Paul has not started with me. Okay. Every month, the billing is going to be 60000 Okay. And in a year, it'll be 700000 Like expenses, 300000 So I said, people soft what stock I saw is already giving me more than, I mean, if I look at the actual amount invested in the people who saw practice, it was like $1,000 for an ad. Okay. I've only invested $1,000, which I will make back on the first day that he starts working. Okay. And his payroll will be paid later. You know, I'm not even paying the payroll till like he's worked. And in the meantime, I already built the client, collected the client. Then after a week, Paul calls me again. He says, uh, the client wants me to manage a team of about a dozen developers. And he's asking me if we can provide the team, okay, of 12 people soft development. So I said, Paul, uh, do you know people soft developers? He said, I'm the president of the user group in Chicago. So I said, do you know? He said, yeah, I, I, I know a dozen guys who I can bring. So I said, what will be they be paying for each of these guys? He said about $2,000 a day each. I said, tell them yes. Okay. So we hired these dozen people for 100, 150,000 each. And they all came to work too. So what I realized is that better than investing in the stock market is just look at the highest PE software company, which needs services and start that service practice because it's telling you the growth is very high. And, and, and then I started doing that. So then we set up a business objects practice. Okay. And so suddenly the IT business is on steroids. Okay. <laughs> because of this stuff. So that's the only time when I took data from an auction driven market. And I didn't invest in those companies, but we made more by not investing. And, um, so that was the only time when I kind of used it in a weird way. But I, I would say that, you know, one of the things about life is that 
you want to specialize. You want to be an inch wide and a mile deep. Okay. So we have a mousetrap. We have auction-driven markets. We don't need to go hunting in other less favorable pastures. Uh, this uh, this people's soft story that you tell us it's it's like uh, your father finding opportunity gaps you found an opportunity <laughs> yeah. but i found the gap because i was a investor investor yeah no i'm i'm looking at i, I couldn't buy i knew the company was great i knew the stock was great but i couldn't buy the stock was, i just couldn't do that fascinating fascinating uh tough question how do you you have kids uh, Pardon? You have kids. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah I have two daughters. Two daughters. Uh, how do you teach them about money, and do they really listen to you, or is it uh, dad's dad, right? Uh, do, do do they actually sit down with you and try and absorb all your life uh, life learnings on investing and how to manage money? Yeah, actually. So I'll I'll give you a, um, uh, an answer because it's uh, it's worked out beautifully. Uh, so about, uh, I think about 25 years ago, uh, there was this guy, I was in this group in YPO and this guy had come to talk to us, Bill Harlow. And Bill, uh, Bill had basically been part of a buyout of a chemical company from his employer. And eventually that got sold and, you know, he ended up with like 60, $70 million. He did really well. And uh, he had these, you know, teenage kids, whatever. And what he did was um, when they were approaching 18, he walked them into Goldman Sachs, opened accounts for them, and put $6 million in their account. And he said, this money is your money. Uh, you have full control of this at 18 to do anything you want with it. You can buy Ferraris, you can buy drugs, you can use it for education, whatever you want. And he told them that the reason I'm giving you this money and the reason I'm giving you it at 18, because I don't want you to make career choices based on what pays the most or based on what is people are saying you should do this or you should do that. I would like you to make career choices based on what you are most passionate about. So you have enough money to live a comfortable life, even if you have a profession which doesn't pay very well. And when Bill Harlow came to talk to us, his kids were already in their 30s. So he said one guy is a postdoc. I mean, he did a, he did a PhD in physics. And then he went to teach physics in high school. He wanted to teach high school kids. So he says the high school physics teacher that doesn't get paid much, but he lives in a $2 million home. Okay. And he loves his life. And he said the second son did a master's in architecture. He has an architectural firm and doing fine. So he said that basically he did not want to set it up so that the money was dribbling out to them at 30 or 35 or 40. So an inheritance is only really relevant to the person receiving it if it comes very early in life. Um, later in life, it really has no meaning. You know, we really can't do a whole lot with it. Uh, what I had done with my daughters is when I heard this story, I like the story in the press, we have these 
this law, uh, UGMA accounts, Unified Gift to Minors Act. So we basically, we can give $15,000 a year. It used to be about $10,000 a year of each parent to each kid or anyone actually want to. And it's tax-free. And I set up these accounts for them. And I used to invest the money in like three, four stocks in these accounts. And the way the UGMA account works is that 18, they get full control, just like what Bill Harlow did. And what happened with these accounts, which we were putting like 20, 30,000 a year in, is that they've done really well with the investments. And it was a solid seven-figure sum in both their accounts. And when they were about 12 or 13 years old, I had uh, sat them down and I explained to them that this account is there. And I also explained to them that beyond this account, nothing else is coming to them. And it's a sizable amount. I said, even if we are not doing well, your college is covered. And exactly what Bill Harlow told his kids, I told my kids, which is basically pick professions based on your passions. Don't look at what is the flavor of the day or what people are saying or what will be good to talk about, any of those things. And uh, actually, it worked out beautifully. So uh, my younger daughter, she's going to finish her PhD in psychology in another, I think, year and a half. And she wants to be a therapist. And, um, and she actually, for a PhD, she wanted to support herself. And uh, so um, she never bothered with the money or whatever else. The older one uh, basically now has started an investment fund. I actually never talked to either of my kids ever about becoming an investor. I always told them, do what you love. So it's not like the apple didn't fall far from the tree. It fell directly under the tree. Okay. And, uh, and she actually has very good instincts and uh, raising money and doing well. And so I think that will work out well. So basically, I think uh, uh, the thing is that as parents, we have 18 years to transfer values. If we have not transferred values in that period of time, you can give them nothing and you still have a problem. And, and on the other hand, if the values are transferred, uh, then uh, the money is actually going to end up being a huge positive. So their friends, uh, all their friends have pursued all these STEM degrees and, you know, whatever else, like, you know, what is going to be hot and what is whatever. And both of them really never went down that path. The degrees they went to, the schools they went to, they just looked at what they were interested in. And they just went down that path, which I think was excellent. I find that very fascinating. You know, I thought you're going to go in some other direction when you spoke about the Bill Harlow story. <laughs> but uh, it's a complete uh, revelation. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I've got two quick questions. I, I have sure. to uh, I'm going to keep the last one about giving money. That's the most critical question I have to get to. But before that, talk to us a little bit about reading and multidisciplinary reading and you know give our listeners viewers uh, some advice on you know how broad should it be how global should it be uh, how they can you know use that reading process to become better versions of themselves yeah so you know i'm i'm buying books all the time you know different i i read something some guy recommend some books, whatever else, and, you know, some podcasts, whatever, probably more than half the books in my library I've not read yet. 
Okay, so there's a large amount that I've not yet gotten to. And a lot of books that I pick up to read, I don't finish. You know, they just don't appeal to me, whatever. Uh, what I'm looking for is, uh, I just go through my library looking for something that is interesting to me at the time. And the book has to really draw me in, um, in the first 10, 20 pages. You know, if I don't really get drawn in, I will just move to something else. And, but, you know, it's a very magical feeling when you're reading something and it really draws you in. And uh, investing, investing is a very broad discipline. You know, the, the kinds of things that affect the future of a business is a, just a huge, broad array of factors. So understanding humans, understanding human psychology, understanding nuances of what type of business is likely to do well, have staying power, all these things. Just a, so you could be reading a book on, you know, some political leader, or you could be reading a book on health, or you could be reading a, a book on some business biography. Uh, all knowledge is cumulative. So my, my objective uh, in reading, the most important objective is I have to be having fun. I have, I have to be having fun. I have to be enjoying what I'm reading. Just like I, plan, I try to enjoy my day. You know, I work on things that are interesting to me. I don't believe in retirement. I will never retire. I could have retired and never worked after I was about 33 years old. From 33 till now, there was no reason for me to work for money. But it would have been a terrible life. You know, it was a useless life. So basically, every day I choose to do the things that I want to do. And the reading is also a choice. And, uh, and so different things come up. Uh, I am very biased towards business biographies. Uh, that's my favorite genre, but I'm reading a lot of other things as well. But, um, you know, like recently I read a book uh, on the Munjals, you know, Hero Honda, right? And it was written by one of the, one of the kids and uh, it was a great read, you know. I mean, I think just that that journey that they took, it was uh, one of the things I learned, uh, which was a, re a revelation to me, is, you know, we we think bicycles are very low-tech. You know, the idea with the Munjals was that here's this, you know, multinational Japanese conglomerate, Honda. They bypass all the main large Indian conglomerates when they're looking for a partner. And they partner with a bicycle company, right? I mean, that just flies in the face of logic or rational anything. They would have met the Tatas. They would have met all these players. You know, they bypass all of them. And what I learned when I read that book is that a bicycle is actually not that simple. When they broke down all the different parts, there's a lot of specialization. We take it for granted because it's so mature and there's so much supply chain. And but. In the early days, they had to like many many times make those parts themselves. So actually, they got a lot of expertise. The transition from a bicycle to a motorcycle, especially when they're getting a collaboration with Honda, was a relatively simple one for them. Uh, what was very important to Honda was the family values and the values. And that was really what Honda was after. And they got some great values. with the And uh, it was a great partnership. Um, so, you know, I think to me, the biographies are the, are the best. I love biographies, by the way. Just love them. 
uh, my last question to you. Uh, talk to us about the Dakshina Foundation. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, I, uh, did I see it on your Twitter thread? You posted a letter Warren Buffett had sent about the annual report of Dakshina. Just talk to us for a few minutes about uh, your thoughts on giving, on Dakshina, what you're trying to achieve. Hopefully, it'll be an inspiration for some of us who are listening and viewing and to maybe start that journey sooner than later. Yeah, so I think the, the genesis of Dakshina really came from this notion uh, that I read with Buffett where you know he was talking about the fact that large inheritances do more harm than good. And, uh, and so he was saying, I want to give my kids enough money for them to do anything they want, but not enough money to do nothing, right? So what is that number? That's a kind of interesting question. But basically, you know, large inheritances will end up really robbing the person of, you know, leveraging their capabilities and so on. So what, what we tried to do with my daughters was we gave them a sum that would give them a push in life. Uh, but it wasn't like it would be an IV drip for the whole life, you know. And Buffett says, you know, if you're Jesse Owen's son, you know, sprinter, he said, you're not going to become the best sprinter if you start 100-meter dashes at the 40-meter line. He said, it's okay to put your son at the 10-meter line, but not the 40-meter line. So I knew that basically with the compounding journey, we would end up with more money than we needed or could consume in a lifetime. So the only thing you can do if you're not going to give it to your gene pool is recycle back to society. And actually giving money away is more difficult than making it. Choices are like poverty and education and healthcare and environment. All of these are very complicated problems. It's really tough nuts to crack. And so with Dakshina, what I wanted to do was I wanted to start early in life. Uh, so that I got some experience. I wanted to take the arrows in the back and get better at giving. So Dakshina started when I was 42. And uh, the idea was to give, I set up a formula giveaway, like 2% of my net worth every year. And it was really designed to be like a tuition bill, pay, pay tuition so you learn. As it turned out, we got immediate traction and uh, we got some great people in India. And Dakshina just took off, right? It has a great model. And it was a great model coupled with a great team. Uh, I did not have that much to do with it other than the funding and the direction. I mean, I'm not based in India, all the operations are in India. It's a fairly large team now. And uh, basically what, what we are doing is we are identifying very very bright but very poor 16 to 18 year olds. And then we prep them for one or two years and they take the IIT or medical entrance exams. And the IITs have like a 1.4% admit rate and we get 60 to 80% of the kids into IIT. So our admit rate is, you know, it's almost a hundred percent. And if I look, include the NIITs is approaching a hundred percent. So, and in medical, it's similar hit rate is pretty high. And the thing is that um, we, we spend about $3,000 per kid. You know, that's approximately what it costs us over one or two years for each, each kid. Um, the transformation over 
five or six years in the family's well-being. So typically these kids are coming from families where the income is like, you know, less than six, 7,000 rupees a month or less than a hundred dollars a month. And uh, they are rural and quite poor. And, you know, they'll graduate and be making five, seven, 10 lakhs to start. And then it just keeps going up from there. And uh, so it was just a very uh, no brainer. So, you know, if I, if I, see that there's a family making, let's say, one lakh a year. And I tell, tell you, Rahul, I'll give you five lakhs. Make their income five lakhs a year. Okay? Basically, it cannot be done. Uh, you know, you could try various things. What we, are, what we are doing is we are selecting families where the kid is very bright. So their income is low, but the horsepower, raw horsepower is very high. And then we are harnessing that horsepower and connecting it to the global economy. And when once we harness that and connect it, we can easily take the income to five or 10 lakhs. And so that engine works if you harness the brains. And, um, you know, we are spending $3,000. The government spends on a subsidy basis one and a quarter crore for each kid at IIT over four years. That's the tune of the government subsidy. The government is spending about uh, north of like 20,000 crores on the IITs. So um, the, the basically two or three lakhs we spend is matched like 30 or 40 to one by the government, which is why we're able to lift. And what is happening with Dakshina is that we're able to redirect that money from the middle class to the poor. And uh, so it's it's actually utilizing those funds by the government in a better way. Fascinating, you know, it's always inspirational to hear, uh, you know, such uh, about such efforts. So, you know, congrats to you and to your team here yeah, for, for doing this. How many years have you been uh, uh, doing this now, Dakshana? Dakshana started in 2007. 2007, wow. Yeah. So, oh, you just celebrated 15 years. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, almost 16 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time flies and uh, our oldest grads are in their 30s. Wow. Some are making like uh, more than half a million a year. Uh, yeah. We have some that have quit IIT and done startups and they've been funded by VCs. So a lot of good things going on. Those those uh, union reunions and all would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a great uh, alum network. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. Many congrats once again. Uh, since I have you, any one idea or thought you would want to leave our listeners and visitors with? Well, I would I would say that the the idea, uh, you know, an important idea to keep in mind is the uh, magic of compounding. So, you know, Einstein calls it the eighth wonder of the world. Compounding is the eighth wonder. So if you think about compounding, there are really three uh, factors that drive the result. Starting capital, um, the annualized rate of return, and the length of the runway. So if you have a very low rate of compounding, and you have a very low amount of starting capital, but the runway is really long. 
you will again end up with astonishing results. So there's an interplay. We don't, we don't have the time to go into it, but there's the interplay between these three factors where a modest amount of savings every month going into an SIP, being put into an index fund, and just done over a lifetime, and you're suddenly going to wake up and you're a wealthy guy. You know, it didn't need to do a whole lot. Didn't need to save a whole lot. It all just worked out. So in that case, it's the length of the runway. So starting early is really important. Uh, having the savings rate is really important. And then the rest of it is just the magic of compounding. And you don't need to be a stock picker. You don't need to find an investment advisor. Uh, you just buy the mid cap or small cap index and you're done. Monish, thank you very much for taking time out. We overshot our timeline. So thank you for accommodating us. Uh, it was wonderful, wonderful uh, talking to you. It's a dream come true. Well, likewise, I had a, I had a lot of fun and I look forward to the, to the, uh, to the final clip when we when we release it, that'll be great. Great, thank you, Rudish. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info@equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again, and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour.